Hi, everybody. How are you? Well, it's been some kind of week. Um, we have to say that uh, as a church, our, our hearts are broken for people in Boston who um, experienced injuries in their families, experienced death in their families. Our prayers are for them. Our, our prayers are also for, um, for the families of the two men who carried this out. You don't hear that a lot, but it's, these are people who are now going to be grieving, who are going to be asking questions, who are you know, disappointed and in pain. These are real families. And so our hearts and our prayers go out to them. And in times like this, I often think about, um, it's Psalm 23, and you may have heard this at funerals or whatever, but it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, won't, I fear no evil. And sometimes we just don't know how long the valley is going to be or how dark it really is or how... how long it's going to take us to get through it. But I think the great thing is what comes right after that, which is it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil because you are with me. And that's the promise we have to cling to is that regardless of what's going on, that God is with us even in these times like this. So our prayers go out to them. It's week 30 of the story. How did this happen? Where did time go? Where did I, where do we lose all this time? It's incredible what we've gone through. Next week is actually the end of the world. Um, not literally, just it's, we're going to talk about it then. And I already read ahead and it turns out okay. So don't, don't, don't panic. Um, but last week we got introduced to a character uh, named Saul who became a guy named Paul and he left an incredibly huge mark on the world. I, I'm not good at math so I, I did a, took out a calculator and did this but 14 out of the 27 books of the New Testament are attached to this guy Paul. Now that's 51.8 percent. Right? So I told you I used a calculator for that. That's a lot. That's, a, that's over half the New Testament because of one particular guy. He left this huge mark in the world. And a lot of times you don't hear his name today without the word saint attached to the front of it. And Contrary to popular belief, you can't apply online to be a saint. There's not a saint idol where people call in and vote for their favorite saints. It's, a, it's kind of a big deal to become a saint. So here's the question. How did Paul's life, this one guy's life, leave such a deep mark on the world to where we still remember him thousands of years later? How did he leave such an impact in the world? And I think that question is important because it's a question you and I face today. Why do we do what we do? Why are we here? Why are we alive? What's the purpose of our being here? It's a question we're constantly asking when we look at our lives. What's the purpose of these hours I'm working at work? What's the purpose of this degree I'm trying to earn and this job I'm trying to get? What's the purpose for all my parenting decisions that I have to make? What is this all for? And when I'm gone, what will be left behind? What's left over with all this stuff I'm doing right now? In other words, it's a very simple question. How do we live a life that is worth remembering? And that's the question I want to deal with. Now, a lot of times when we talk about lives worth remembering, we, we kind of start thinking that we're talking about older people. Because when you talk about legacy and leaving things behind, that's typically when that discussion starts. But frankly, the horse is already out of the barn. It's a little late to close the door at that point. The legacy at that point in older years has already been left behind. And frankly, they're just more fun things to be doing with your older years as this 88-year-old Nana shows us. Take a look. Two things. When Nana puts the bag down, it's on. <laughs> And the second thing is, did you notice she had her medic alert necklace on? Just, you want to have fun, but you've got to be prepared just in case something goes wrong with that. 
Let me take you to a passage near the end of Paul's life. Now, he wasn't 88 at the time, but a passage near the end of Paul's life where he's starting to put things into perspective. And I think this will help us as we go forward. Paul has been around the Mediterranean, and he's been talking to churches and leaders, followers of Jesus, encouraging them. And he calls together a group of leaders from a church in Ephesus. And listen to what he tells them. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now this could be, this is a laundry list of stuff that Paul lists here, and it could be the summary of his entire life. He could imprint this on his tombstone and it would say everything it needed to say. Teaching, being bold, humility, suffering. But, but did you notice that there's, there's, there's these little things embedded in this? These trials, tears, testing struggles. And it's nice to know that even a Bible guy, a hero of the scriptures like Paul, went through difficulties. He went through trials. He went through testing. Not to mention the fact that when he's telling them this, he knows he's about to go to prison for a good long while for preaching and teaching about Jesus. And when we think about prison in these times, we don't need to think about Shawshank where they're up with windows and things like that. This is a dungeon with no sunlight, with very little food, usually kind of cramped and clammy and dark and damp and, and dingy. And, and it's not one of those places like we see today. He's going to this place for a long time. He knows this is coming because a prophet has told him. It says this in Acts 21. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Not exactly the path to career success. This is where Paul's life is going to end, and he knows that. And if somebody had asked, you know, if you've ever gotten that question before, like, where do you want to be in five years, if you ever heard that question, if you asked Paul that question, I doubt he would have said, well, you know, I'd like to go and uh, go all over the Mediterranean, preaching about Jesus, running for my life, and then eventually at some point end up in a Roman prison. That sounds good to me. How about you? What do you got in store for the next five years? We don't think that's exactly what Paul was looking for. And I think we, we believe that because somehow we believe that there's this connection to Jesus that our life is going to be like a Disney film, like everything is going to just flow and it's going to have a song and talking birds and things like that. But Paul's kind of the example that that's not exactly reality. I heard a quote one time that said, the safest place to be is the center of God's will. Well, let's look at Paul's life and see how true that is. Here's one thing we see. He's talking to a group of people, a crowd, and he says, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and they shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. God talks to Paul. Awesome, right? Because of what God said to Paul, people want to kill him. Not awesome. Okay, safest place, I'm not so sure about that. And then, then he talks about this other part of his life. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones. Um, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and day on the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. <gasps> I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. 
I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I don't feel weak. It's pretty amazing. I don't know that that looks too safe. Do you? I don't know that this is the life we choose for our children. Do you? But what does he do with that? Well, this is where we begin to see Paul making his mark on the world. He says this, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What? Wait, wait, when you're weak, then you're strong? When you're oppressed and they're in hardships and trials, that's the, that's the sweet spot? We don't hear this today, do we? We don't hear people talking like this. So what is it about Paul that made him do what we tend to do when we're in the middle of these situations, which is get bitter and get tired and give up? There was a study done in the UK back in 2011, and, and for the whole year of 2011, they found that happiness overall for the country was pretty much on the downslope. The happiness was pretty much on the downslope, except for one month of the year, which was in April of 2011. Do you know what happened then? This happened then. <laughs> the whole year was on the downslope, but one month and a celebrity wedding turned everything around. MIT researchers did a study in 2012, and they found three basic things that contributed to human happiness. The first biggest factor was health. Healthy people are like 20% happier than average, while unhealthy people are about 8.25% more unhappy. Second thing they found was marriage. Married people are about 10% happier than people who have never been married. The third thing they found was income. People with higher incomes are happier, with the people in the highest income bracket about 3.5% happier than average. You're asking me, why are you throwing statistics at us? We don't really care. Here's why I'm throwing statistics at you. Do you notice all four of these things are things that could disappear tomorrow? All of these things are things that could go away. And they're the things that determine the pursuit of happiness. They're the, the goal of being happy, health. I mean, so when you get older and your health starts to break down, does that mean you're less happy? I have grandparents that I know would disagree with that. Nana would disagree with that. Have you met a happier lady than her? The divorce rate in our country is like 50%. So are you really telling me that only half the people who get engaged in this thing that's supposed to produce happiness are finding it? Would you take a job that only paid you 50% of the time? Income? Come on. After 2008, none of us trust income to make us happy anymore. As a matter of fact, studies show that life satisfaction is higher in poorer countries like Brazil and Costa Rica and Panama than it is in North America. What happened? This is what I think has happened. Somewhere along the lines, we've been deceived into believing that the point of our lives is to be happy. We've been deceived into believing that the pursuit of happiness is the goal of all of our existence. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with being happy. Hear me out on this. I like being happy. I'd rather be happy than not happy. Trust me. But the pursuit of happiness as the, as the ultimate goal is the thing that really kills us. And I think this is what Paul figured out. And this is what he figured out. The key to the life God made us for is to invest in joy instead of going broke for happiness. Dallas Willard, who's a great writer, once said that the surest way for you to become miserable is to try to be happy. 
Because it's those things that we pursue to make us happy that make us miserable because we keep chasing them and we never reach them. And they don't last and they're fickle and they don't stand the test of time. Happiness is fleeting, but joy is like a jawbreaker. It just keeps melting into better and better forms. And we get a front row seat for this discussion in the book of Philippians, which is a letter that Paul wrote from that very jail cell that he knew he was going to, that dank and dark prison And he was in Rome facing highest charges from the highest courts with his life on the line. In other words, this should be the time that he's writing the things that matter the most. And he does. First thing he does is he starts talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, or in other words, to make him happy. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. By going down, by giving up the things that he normally would have been expected to take, that would have made him happy, he became the greatest name above all names. And Paul realized this. He harnessed this. He knew this was the life of joy that God was trying to teach. Jesus even taught his disciples about this. He said to, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The point here is, is that we spend our lives looking for the things that make us happy because honestly, without God, that's the only solution we have to the problems that we face. Meanwhile, Jesus says, listen, if you give up the race to make yourself happy, you give up that life, that tyranny of the pursuit of happiness and follow me, I'll show you something that will last forever. I'll show you what the life of joy really looks like. But the question for us is, how do we get from a place where there are random bombings and darkness and evil and the things that happen in our everyday life, how do we get from there to this place of joy? How do we get from this place where there are all kinds of things to make us doubt whether we could ever be happy to a place where joy is a part of our lives? Writer Richard Foster talks about this process this way, and he uses a math equation, which I hate math, so if it's math that I'm putting up for you, it's got to be important. It says we move from promise to problem to provision. God at one point said, I'm going to rescue the entire world. I promise that I'm going to do this. And then he sends Jesus, but there's this problem, this problem of sin, this problem of broken humanity, and that problem is solved by a cross. And Jesus, as we know, isn't crazy about the cross. He says to his father, is there any other way we could do this? Any different way we could go about doing this? But not what I will, but what you will. Because Jesus understood that on the other side of the cross, God was going to provide life. Not just for him, but for every person who would come. That God was going to heal the problem of sin in the world and save and rescue his people. He was going to give him and the world what it needed And we hear about this in a passage in Hebrews. It says, For the joy set before him, before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What was this joy that was set before Jesus? It was the joy of knowing that you and I would not have to be locked into a life of pursuing happiness, but that we could follow him into a life of joy. Because for every promise that God makes, the world we live in will throw a problem up against it. And for every problem that we face, God gives us the provision on the other side. He says, just stick it out. It may not be happy, 
But hang on to the joy. And on the other side, there is life. On the other side, there is provision for you. Even for Paul. The way Paul's story with God begins is Jesus knocks him off his donkey, which is funnier if you read it in the King James. He knocks him off his donkey and he blinds him. And then he calls him to be the greatest apostle ever. But he says, first, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I like to think about this as the first time that I ever took a splinter out of my daughter's finger. She was walking and she rubbed her hand down a telephone pole. And Oh yeah, yeah. And she got this massive splinter in her finger. And I'm watching her and she's in pain. And she's, I can tell this is not a happy situation. I'm like, okay honey, well I'm going to make that feel better. And so I come at her with a, like a needle and tweezers and some alcohol. And she's like, oh no, whoa, time out. Hurts already, thanks. Like, but you got to understand, unless I, unless I peel back the skin, unless I dig down in there and get that out, it's never going to heal. It'll never feel better. Really? Do I have to go through all that? Yeah. For you to heal, for you to be better, this is going to hurt for a little bit. And this is what happens to us when we begin to understand what it looks like to walk from happiness to joy. Because God says to us, I understand, I've promised you that it's going to be better. But you've got to know that there are going to be trials and tests in the middle. I'm going to have to peel back the skin. I'm going to have to pull some stuff out. But after that is over, it's all going to be good. So do you trust me? Paul's life, it looks like this. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Learning to be content is the key to a life of joy. If you can be content like Paul is when he's naked, cold, hungry, in prison, Everything else sort of starts to fade into the background. 90% of our problems would be solved if we just trusted God and was content with what he had given us. And this is where Paul lived. And as he got his hands around that kind of life of joy, happiness began to show itself as not being cracked up for all that we thought it was cracked up to be. My wife and I were at a restaurant in Milwaukee, and I, I'm that kind of person, like, I'll find what I want, and then I'll go read everything else. And so I found what I wanted, and I'm reading through the rest of the menu, and I came to this one item, and I was like, oh, oh, yes. So I thought I would share it with you, since hopefully you haven't eaten yet, and this will be great. Biscuits and gravy. Now, I'm from the South, so I know what this is supposed to be, but listen to the description. Freshly baked cheddar and chive buttermilk biscuits, scrambled eggs, black forest ham, and chorizo cream gravy. Yeah. Can I get an amen from the people? Uh. Are you kidding me? You need like a state license to eat something like that. And I looked at that dish and I thought, oh, my belly would be so happy with that right now. And Jesus is okay with it, so it's not sin. He's all about biscuits and gravy. If not, half the South is going to hell. So I know that he's okay with that. But I knew that that happiness was going to be short-lived because of the 750 miles I would have to run in order to burn off the biscuits and gravy. Now listen to me. Sometimes you just need to eat the biscuits, okay? Let's just agree to that. Sometimes you just need to order them, eat it, and let it go. But you can't live your life always eating the biscuits. Because if the biscuits make you happy, they won't always make you happy. 
The pursuit of more biscuits is not going to be enough. That's the tyranny of happiness, is that one day you'll get tired of it. But the thing about joy is that joy will always be enough. C.S. Lewis says it this way, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Happiness is a cheap imitation of the good life that God has for us. It's an imposter. It's a knockoff. In other words, happiness is about being gratified where joy is about being satisfied. Jesus tells a woman, I will give you living water because she's drawing water she's going to have to draw every day. He says, listen, if you never want to drink again, I'll give you living water. It'll satisfy you. This is gratifying need. I'll satisfy you forever if that's what you want. If you want that life of joy to be satisfied, Jesus is ready to give that to you and to I, just like he gave it to Paul. And now this is a challenge for us in our culture. And the reason it's a challenge, the reason it's tough for us to come by is because of things like this. I saw this t-shirt recently. Yeah. Because that's where we are. I'm that guy sometimes who's got my iPhone and I'm staring at it, shaking it. Even though I've got more information in the palm of my hand that's in the Library of Congress, I'm shaking at it because it won't load fast enough. Maybe I should cut it a break. It's talking to space. I'm impatient with this technological advance in the palm of my hand. Why? Because I want it like 15 seconds ago. And joy just doesn't get a fair shake because joy is a long-term kind of thing. So to know joy in our instant gratification kind of culture, we've got to start asking some critical questions of ourselves. Like, do I really believe it would be good to be content? To not have to upgrade, to not have to replace, to not have to have the newest and the best and the fastest. Am I okay to be content with what I have and know that God is good enough for me? To have joy in spite of the challenges that are in front of me. To have joy that says, even though things are not what I want right now, I can hold on and I can trust because someone or something bigger is in control of things. Now listen, Paul wasn't born content. He wasn't born joyful. He had to learn it, and he learned it the hard way. One of Paul's buddies, a man named James, who is the brother of Jesus, and this is how he writes it. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Now, I know what you're thinking. What kind of idiot considers trials to be joy? James himself probably died by being pelted with stones at the end of his life. What kind of idiot considers trials to be joy? Well, the kind of idiot who knows that there are no triumphs without the trials. The kind of idiot who knows that life is built not for happiness, but for joy in the Lord. If you want a complete and full life, it will come with learning through trials how to be joyful even when you can't be happy. Cubs fans, I want to throw you a bone here. You guys get this. It's been a hundred years since you've been happy. You've got to have some joy, right? Thank you. You guys don't get a fair shaker. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to help you out. 
So we come back to that question again. How do we live a life worth remembering? We live a life worth remembering by learning to live for joy, by trusting God, even when we're not happy. Now, I know people, some people who come to Parkview are facing a lot of criticism from coworkers or from family who may not understand. They think you go to a cult. You know, like, have they made you drink the Kool-Aid yet? Have you had a handle a snake? Don't they sacrifice goats on the stage? Are they, they asked you for your 401k yet, all that stuff? I know that that's what you're hearing. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't get angry with those people. Don't get mad at them. Some of them are your family, so it's even better not to. Just take joy in knowing that God is going to change their hearts as they see you change. Take joy in knowing that as you become more like Jesus, you can't argue with a good story. And the transformation that will happen will change their lives. And joy is the thing that is worth pursuing it, even if we're not happy, even if we're being persecuted for what we do. Jesus taught about the long-term effects of joy. This is what he said. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. It was worth giving away everything. Jesus also said this about joy. He said, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. And a child is born into the world. Now, we may be playing fast and loose with forgets here. I understand that. But something has to happen in order for two children to be born to the same woman, right? Let alone three or four for some of you. You're very, you're very okay with forgetting what happened the first time and going on to the next one. I understand that. But listen, if joy is the kind of thing that makes people forget the pain of childbirth, why are we chasing this thing like, like it's the only thing that matters? Joy is a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. Now, I understand that a lot of us might be sitting back and going, well, that sounds all good, but here's the reality. I, I don't see it. Right now, where I'm sitting in my life, I don't see the possibility. I don't even see the possibility of being happy. Shriek was a crazy week for me. I went to the doctor on Wednesday, and uh, he said, I, I think you might have bronchitis. And it was everything I could do not to go, dear sir, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> Um, somebody's got to kill that, please. Someone kill the trend. But in my head, I'm going, how can I have bronchitis? I've, I've got to talk to my friends this weekend. I, I, how do I, I yeah, this frustration, this, this trial. And, and I'm like, really? This week? Why can't I have bronchitis next week? It's just because my body is broken. It's frail. It's lives in a world of sin. It's subject to all kinds of bacterial garbage. But I can be happy in knowing that God's going to take care of this word. And whether I break into a coughing fit here in six seconds or not, God is going to do something with what is happening here this weekend. Eventually, we have to push through. We have to push through the trials to get to the place where we see that God is going to do something no matter how happy we might be or how little joy we see. And joy puts things into perspective for us. Because listen to what Paul says in prison in Philippians. He says, what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, scubalon, that I may gain Christ. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
And again, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Someone needs to remind Paul as he's writing this that he's in prison. Dude, it's over. You're in jail. You're going to die here. Pressing on? Pushing forward? I haven't gained it yet? Come on. The only way that makes sense is if Paul has something bigger in mind. If Paul is living for something bigger than just where he is in the world. If Paul is living for something more than what he sees in front of him. So if you're in the midst of a trial today, if you're in the midst of a challenge, if you're in the midst of a place where you don't see happiness, but you'd long to see joy, listen to Paul. Press on. Push forward. Push ahead for that thing that Christ has bought for you. It is on the other side. There is a promise. There is a problem right now. But the provision is coming. Press on. Press on. Live the life of joy. Take hold of that thing that God has promised you. And know that joy comes when we believe God is there, even when we don't have happiness to fall back on. So we come back to our question. How do we live a life worth remembering? We live a life worth remembering when we can live through trials, believing that God is there even if we're not happy. Some of us, our view of God says, if I'm not happy, then obviously I've done something to offend God or, or God doesn't exist. Well, maybe we need to refine our expectations of God. Maybe God isn't there to make us happy. Maybe He's there to be a good Father and give us the things that we really need, not the things that we want. To live a life worth remembering we learn to long for joy rather than going broke for happiness. So in your trial today, ask this question. If it's possible, is it possible that God is still with me even if I'm not happy, even if I'm not getting what I want? Is God still with me? And if so, what does that mean? You know, Paul's words in Philippians are written down around the time of a man being the emperor of Rome whose name was Nero, Caesar Nero, but they called him Nero. This is what Nero looks like. It's pretty cute, huh? The bust never does him justice, you know. Nero was the, the like rock star emperor of the Roman Empire. He was young, he was attractive. He had all the money, he had all the fame, he had, you know, the, the rich and powerful came and bowed down to him and everybody wanted to be his friend. He had an enormous Twitter following and he wrote a book and it, it was fantastic. He was even married to a beautiful swimsuit model and, it, and not just that, it wasn't that that was good enough. He wanted her to stay as soft and as beautiful as long as she could so he commanded that she take milk baths every single day until tragically she became lactose intolerant and then... <laughs> That never happened. I'm just kidding. But what he did do was he had alligator mucus provided to her to use as a hand lotion to keep her hands nice and soft. Now, where do you get something like that? Well, some poor schmuck in the kingdom had to go down and fish it out, you know? There's no beauty supply store. With, Are you out of alligator mucus? I'm so sorry. Why did he have all this? Because he's the king. And this made him happy to have his wife's hands be as soft as they possibly could. So he's the emperor of Rome. Meanwhile, in Rome at that time, in a jail cell, in a dungeon, is a man named Paul. Now in history, when we hear Paul described, he's described as 5'5", five five, bow-legged, ball-headed, with one long eyebrow across the top. <laughs> Nero, Paul. Interesting juxtaposition. 
So if you went to Rome, if you went out into the middle of the public square and did kind of like the mall survey thing, and you asked people, you said, all right, who do you think thousands of years from now people are going to remember more, Emperor Nero or this guy Paul? They'd go, you kidding? Nero. I mean, Nero is, he's powerful, he's good looking. Have you seen his wife? Holy cow. He's got the new car, he's got the, the book and the Twitter following, and he's got the presence. He's, got, he's the emperor of Rome, for crying out loud. And who is Paul? I, I don't even know who you're talking about right there. And yet the funny thing is, thousands of years later, we name our churches St. Paul. We name our children Paul or Pauline. And we name our dogs Caesar or Nero. (laughs) You tell me, who got remembered more? When we live a life that's worth remembering, we leave it behind as a gift. And so what we need to ask ourselves is this. Will we be overcome by the bitterness of the pursuit of happiness? Or will we learn to live through the problems into the provision of a life of joy? What kind of gift will we leave behind with our lives? Will we leave a good gift? The joy that comes in knowing that if God is for us, even in the midst of our problems, then nothing can be against us. Listen to what Hebrews says. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. There's that word again, content. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So in that business crisis, in that marriage crisis, in that fight, in that struggle, in that addiction, in all of those things... If the Lord is your helper, what can anyone else do to you? Joy is possible, even in the midst of that problem. It changes the course of our lives, and it gives us a good gift, a mark to leave on the world. So the question for us that we need to wrestle with today is, are we ready to live a life that's truly memorable? Get ready for communion right now. And this, I, don't, I don't know what kind of trials you walked in with. I don't know wh- what kind of things you're wrestling to be happy in, much less be joyful in. Maybe you're saying, okay, I don't get it. Am I, am I not supposed to be happy? What am I supposed to, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying happiness as a goal is not going to last. And Paul knew this. This was the course of his whole life. And he knew that God had something better in mind for him. By the end of his life, Paul was writing some by the end of this whole letter, and I read through this letter of Philippians again, and just how, how powerful it is to hear him from jail saying things like, be encouraged, rejoice, have joy. Listen to even what he says in chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, every situation, he's seen a lot. With, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus gathers his disciples together on that night that he's betrayed, and he looks at them, he breaks the bread, and he passes the cup, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. What, what was he trying to get them to remember? I think he was trying to get them to remember joy. To remember that they don't have to be anxious anymore. To remember that when grace, when strength is gone, there is grace to give them strength. To remind them that they don't have to be happy. There's a bigger thing for them to shoot for, to go for. And in order to help them do that, he gave them flesh and blood. Very basic 
nitty-gritty kinds of things to say, because my body was broken, because my blood was spilled, I can sympathize with you. I know what it means to go through trials, to get broken, to get wounded, to get hurt, to get betrayed. I know what that feels like. I know it doesn't make you happy, but press on. Press on with joy because there's more on the other side. So whenever you get beaten up or broken, whenever you get tired or lost or unhappy, take this bread, drink this cup, be encouraged. Know there's joy on the other side. As they pass the trays across, there are two cups, one inside the other. Take both of them, hold them. We'll all take communion together. You don't have to be a part of Parkview to take communion with us. We're glad to welcome you to the table if you believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment, I'm thankful for all that you've given us. I'm grateful for this act, these two elements that remind us that happiness doesn't have to be the end of our life, the goal of our life, but there is more. Something bigger and more beautiful is there for us and help us to reflect on that in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.